Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. Today's Bible reading is from Luke chapter 2, verse 1 to 20. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary and was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord was shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favour rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. It's been a whirlwind. We never thought we'd have a child. We're so old. We'd given up. And then an angel appeared to my husband, Zechariah, and told him we were going to have a child and that he will be great. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before birth and his job is to prepare the way for the Messiah. And then we get a visit from Mary and she told us that an angel appeared to her and the Holy Spirit has come upon her and she will give birth to the Messiah we have been waiting centuries for. It's incredible. He's been struck mute by an angel. He doubted God. Confusing stressful. I'm just an ordinary girl, nothing special. But something extraordinary happened to me. An angel visited me and told me I was going to have a baby. And not just any baby, but the Son of God. I'm worried what people will think and whether they'll even believe me, particularly Joseph. People are going to think terrible things about me and I'm just a kid. How am I going to raise a child? But at the same time, I'm super excited. It's a good thing. And I'm God's servant. This baby will be a blessing, not only to me, but to the whole world. So to answer your question, 
stressful, confusing, difficult, scary, but really exciting. Oh, it's been hectic. I mean, it just comes around so quick. You get the decorations in the shops in about October, and then you blink, and it's just upon you. Oh, I've got lunch to get ready, presents to buy, and it just builds up all year. I'm sure in the old days, things must have been so much less commercialised and so much easier. At first, I was struggling to believe that what Mary said was true. It sounded so far-fetched. Did an angel really appear to her? Or was there another man? At first, I was so confused. I didn't believe her. I thought that divorce was the right thing to do. But then an angel appeared to me and confirmed everything she said. Since then, I felt so much pressure. What will people think? What about my reputation? Will people believe us? We've got no family around, so in many ways, it's lonely. And now I've just heard that there's no spot in the inn. We can't find a spot for Mary and baby Jesus is to be born. Although, there is this manger. We can't find a spot. I mean, finding a park at Christmas is just insane. And the shops, they are so busy. I don't know why we don't do this online. There's pressure building. I really want to get Christmas lunch right. But there's the family. Uncle Bob's going to be there. Oh, we only see him once a year, but if he makes one more inappropriate joke, I'm gonna. It's going to be quiet. We're not sure how it's going to pan out and how we'll go as parents, but I know God will be with us. We are so thrilled and grateful to God that we are having a son. I've taken some time off the carpentry and I really want to be there for Mary. We're so young, but I know we're in this together. I don't know what to expect. We'll probably have to travel a bit with the census and all that, but hopefully we'll have time together as a little family I'm so excited to see what Jesus is like. We have Christmas Eve at church. We go to the most amazing church in the world called Follow Baptist. I'm not biased at all. It's going to be great. And, well, you're all here. It's Christmas lunch with my family. Luke's is outlaws. And then we're going to Luke's family for dinner. There will be lots of presents, heaps of fun, and way too much food. We're so excited to be having our son John, but we're also excited that the Messiah is to be born. We can't wait to meet Jesus. Jesus. Definitely Jesus. 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 Merry Christmas, everyone. And welcome to the world's greatest story. It's Christmas time again. It's a busy time, whether you're in 4BC or whether you're all together here in 2017. It's very busy, but I've got to say, I unashamedly love Christmas time. I love Christmas because uh, of the presents. Who here, kids, likes the presents? Santa Claus is coming tonight, and whether you're a little kid or a big kid, uh, we love presents. I love Christmas because of family and friends. Uh, my brother's just flown back in from India, and uh, he's been there for a year. He's going back for another year, but we've got him for five days. Uh, my grandparents are here. They're both over 90, and um, it's really great at Christmas to gather together with family 
and friends. I love Christmas because of the Christmas lights. Uh, anyone seen Christmas lights this year? Last night we went out into Packenham and it's just great to see the community come out and a, a real community spirit at Christmas time. I love Christmas because of the food. You probably notice, I probably eat too much of it at Christmas time. I love Christmas because it's also usually a time for a rest and a time for holidays. But there's one thing I love about Christmas that tops everything else at Christmas time. And the thing I love about it most is it's a time to once again reflect on the story of Jesus. Over the last few weeks in our Christmas series at Follow, we've been doing, uh, asking that, sorry, we've been doing that by asking a question. And the question we've asked is this, what if you... What if you were in the world's greatest story? What would it have been like to be there that very first Christmas to experience what those main characters went through at Christmas time? And so as you saw in the video a moment ago, in the last few weeks we've explored some of these characters in an effort to kind of immerse ourselves into their experience and try and imagine what their mindset would have been and what they had, would have gone through that very first Christmas. And so week one, we looked at Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, an elderly, barren couple Uh, who had a visit from an angel who told them that they would finally have a son, perhaps decades after they'd given up of having one. And we tried to wonder what they would have been going through, to live in a society where people look down on you for not having children, to all of a sudden having an announcement that they would have a kid called John the Baptist, and he would be an incredible kid, and so to have people now looking up to them. And we wondered how would it have felt like for them, their life changing in an instant. Second week we talked about Mary, And we explored her story a little bit, a 12 to 15-year-old young woman. And we imagined after her angel visitation uh, how she was going at the opposite end of this spectrum. She was incredibly young. She had a whole life ahead of her. And so we tried to imagine her as a young virgin, what she'd be thinking and going through in such a miraculous and surprising circumstance. Last week, we considered her husband-to-be, a guy called Joseph who had to process Mary's story, and we saw a bit of that in the video, and decide whether to believe her or not. And so we wondered what his emotions would be. No doubt there would have been fear and doubt and you know, anger, suspicion, hurt, all of those things. But we saw in his life that he was a man who was both tough and tender. Tough enough to stand on his convictions no matter what it cost him, and tender enough to love Mary and to open his heart to God. And we talked about how... We need to be like that if we're going to truly be men of God. We need to be tough and tender. And when I look at our society today, I think we lack men who are both tough and tender. Today we come to the climax of the Christmas story as we focus on the central figure of the story, Jesus Christ. And the truth is this, that if all the characters of this story existed, apart from Jesus, none of us would be here today. But because of him, 2,000 years later, we pause everything in our calendars. We stop everything at Christmas time, and we reflect on him and consider who he was and what he has done for us. And so we can try to imagine all those other characters and what they went through, but Jesus is the only character at Christmas time who actually has the ability to bring us in to the world's greatest story. Uh, Most of you would know that I've recently come back from a trip in the Middle East. I went to Israel and Jordan and the West Bank. And it was really the the trip of a lifetime, something I absolutely loved. And before I went, I made a list of a whole lot of things that I wanted to see when I was over there. And, you know, thankfully, uh, it was a huge blessing. I got to see most of those things in the 13 days I was there. But one of the places I was really looking forward to visiting the most was a place called Masada. 
Now, Masada is a Hebrew word which means fortress, and that's pretty much what Masada is. It's an ancient fortress in the southern district of Israel, situated on top of an isolated rock plateau on the eastern edge of the Judean desert overlooking the Dead Sea. And so it's a stunning place to be. Masada is one of Israel's most popular tourist attractions. And it's popular for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's popular because of the architecture. It was originally built by Herod the Great, a biblical character, an awful person, but one of the greatest builders in the ancient world. And so Masada is an incredible masterpiece of ancient construction on the middle of this mountain, in the middle of nowhere, and its design would stack up in today's design. It's absolutely incredible. And so on top of this hill, there is all sorts of ancient ruins and walls that showed that back in Herod's day, there was vibrant life happening on top of that mountain, and it wasn't just any life, it was actually life that was fit for a king. And so it's an incredible, magnificent place. And that's the first reason people love to see it. The second reason Masada is really popular is that it's famous for a siege that happened there uh, many years after Herod's death. Masada was eventually taken over by a bunch of Jewish zealots. They were seen as rebels against the Roman Empire. And they took it as a refuge from the Romans who were at that time conquering the entire world. Eventually the Romans found out that these zealots were on top of Masada and so they came to get them and to wipe them out once and for all. But when they arrived at Masada, they realised that the only way up was this narrow track, which they called the Snake Path. And there was no way the Romans could get their massive wrecking war machines up to the top of Masada. And so if you know anything about the Romans, you know that they built everything. And so they decided that they were going to build their own road from the bottom of Masada all the way up to the top to capture these Jews. And so you can imagine these Jewish zealots at the top of the mountain for three months watching the the vast power of the Roman Empire, building a road up to the top of Masada, knowing that when they arrive there, they are completely doomed. It would be an incredibly scary experience. But these zealots were determined not to be captured. They didn't want to be killed by the Romans, and they didn't want to be taken as slaves. And so the 960 uh, uh, Jewish zealots up on top of the mountain decided that they would take their own lives. And so when the Romans reached the top and broke through the wall, expecting to siege the city and take it over, they found nothing but an eerie silence and 960 dead bodies. And so being on top of Masada and considering all this history, surrounded by beautiful mountains and scenery and uh, incredible sea views, was just an amazing experience. But there was one part of it that I wasn't expecting that actually made Masada deeply personal for me. At the top of the mountain, the very top, there's a tiny room made out of rock. And there's a little window in it. And inside that little room, there's a short Jewish man by the name of Shai Abramovich. And there's a photo of him coming up on the screen in just a moment. But he sits there in that room all day, every day, writing the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. And so he sits there all day, every day. He's a master in the art of writing Hebrew Bible scrolls. And as he writes away, he seems completely oblivious to what's happening in in the world around him. As he traces the characters onto cow leather parchment, his perspective face is just centimetres from his desk. And so he sits there all day, he dips his little ancient pen in the ink, and then he writes. And then he dips his pen again, and he writes. And he does this all day, every day. But one thing I soon worked out is that you can actually engage with him as he works away. 
And so I would talk to a brick wall if I could. And so it was an opportunity to talk to this guy. And so I started chatting to him. And I made the comment that it was wonderful to see him working. And then I said the word shukran. Now shukran in Jordan means thank you. And when I said shukran to this guy, it got his attention. And he looked up at me, I think mildly impressed. And he said, actually, the Hebrew word for thank you isn't shukran. So maybe he wasn't impressed. Maybe he was thinking, you idiot. And he said, the word for thank you in Hebrew is the word tada. And he said, if you want to say thank you very much, you say tada rabah. And so I said to him, I said, tada rabah. And he smiled. And he said to me, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Australia. G'day, mate. <laughs> and he said, what's your name? I said, Luke. He said, what's your wife's name? And, and I hadn't even told him I had a wife. Clearly, he looked at this and thought, this guy can't be on the shelf still. And so he made an assumption, which happened to be true. And I said, my wife's name is Kim. And so he got his little piece of card, about half the size of a business card. And he got his ink pen, and he dipped it in the ink, and he started to write in Hebrew on this little card. And they dipped it in ink again, and he wrote some more stuff on it. Then he handed it to me. And there's going to be a picture of it come up on the screen in a moment. And on this card, it just says, Luke and Kim, or at least I hope that's what it says. Maybe you wrote something else. But apparently it says Luke and Kim in Hebrew with two love hearts. And I could have gone all the way around Israel, all the way through Jordan, all the way across the West Bank, and I could have got every souvenir I could have found, but nothing would have been as precious to me as that little bit of card. And so I took it home with me. Yeah, it was a wonderful experience. And I took it home, and it was an opportunity for, for me to show my wife that I'm not just tough, but I'm also tender. And so I gave it to her in exchange for a kiss, which I'm still waiting for, but it's Christmas, so maybe tomorrow I'll get lucky with the kiss. But it's something that we have stuck on our bathroom mirror now, and it's something I hope to keep forever, but what it really did for me is that it changed my memory of Masada. And it changed my memory from simply visiting a popular tourist attraction and hearing some interesting history, and it actually took me into the story, becoming an experience I'll never forget. On that day, on top of the mountain, Shai Abramovich brought me, Luke Williams, into the story. And at Christmas time, this is exactly what we remember. That as much as we can try and put ourselves in the story by imagining the characters, Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph and next week, Simeon and Anna, only one of the characters in the story actually invites us to be part of the story, and that's Jesus. And he invites us into the world's greatest story, and he does it by first stepping into the story himself. And so we could gather today and we can talk about all these characters, but as I said before, if it wasn't for Jesus, we wouldn't be here today. But instead, every Christmas, ever since he was on earth, we gather together, not just remembering a past event, but celebrating a present and future reality in Christ. And for me, one of the most truly remarkable things about Christmas is that Jesus is Emmanuel, God. God, the God that created the universe with us, Emmanuel, God with us. And I think it's a staggering thought to think that he would leave the glory and the majesty and the perfection of heaven and he would step down into the world he created, God in human form. Now, while we were away in the Middle East, we stayed primarily in four-star hotels. 
Uh, I think in Jordan, they actually went to Safeway and bought a couple of stars and just stuck it on the back of the, the two they already had. Uh, but in Israel, it was legitimately four stars. And so while we were there, um, you know, you had comfortable rooms and um, warm beds and, you know, running water and one of those breakfast buffets every day. You know those breakfast buffets? And you get there on the first day and you think, what am I going to have? And you think, I know, I'm going to have everything. <laughs> Absolutely everything except the yogurt and the muesli. And then you do that for four days, and on the fifth day you get there and you go, I don't want any more food. All I want is the yogurt and the muesli. Just bring it over. I can't take another bit of food. Well, it was like that. And so most of the time we stayed in really nice accommodation. But on the last couple of days of the trip, we stepped out of, outside the walls of Israel to the West Bank. And we spent a couple of days staying at Bethlehem Bible College. And it would be fair to say that Bethlehem Bible College is dorm-like accommodation. And I thought it was nice enough and it was comfortable and there was shower to have and there was friendly people. But a couple of people on the trip were a little bit annoyed that they had to step down from four stars to a dorm in Bethlehem. And you know what I'm thinking? Poor people, right? That's what we're all thinking. But at Christmas time, we, we consider Jesus and we remember that he stepped down, not from four stars, but from affinity stars. And he didn't step down into Bethlehem into a dorm. He stepped further down into a manger. And we sing about it, don't we, at Christmas time? Away in a manger. Yeah, that's the song we sing. Do you know what a manger means? It's an animal feeding trough. We don't sing that, do we? Away in an animal feeding trough. It just doesn't fit with the chorus. It doesn't sound as civil and as nice and as warm and cosy and sweet as away in a manger. But I think it's important to remember that Jesus was born and placed in a manger because it reminds us that Jesus invites us to be part of the world's greatest story by first stepping into it himself. And we're reminded that it was a huge step down, a huge step down, and yet he did it for you, and he did it for me. And the reason he did it is because we stuffed it up. You know, when God created the heavens and the earth, we can read about it in the first book of the Bible, he finished his creation, then he said, it's very good well, I reckon if you look around today at the world, a lot of the time it doesn't feel very good. In fact, it feels like a bit of a mess. And the reason it's a mess is that we've walked away from God. We've decided we'll do it our own way in our hearts. We thought we don't need you. We don't want you. We can do this ourselves. And whether you agree with that or not, I think we can all agree with this, that we know that we've all done the wrong thing at times. There's been times in our life when we've been selfish there's been times in our life where we've hurt each other. There have been times in our life when we've contributed at times to making this world a sad place. If you don't believe me, just watch the news tonight. And yeah, we've all done some good things, and that's great. As Christians in particular, I think we should be doing good things. We should be blessing our world all the time and following in the footsteps of Christ. But amongst all the good things we do, there's also a stack of things that we've done that aren't good. And so you've got us over here, and then you've got a holy God over there. And because he's holy, he can't actually tolerate all the stuff that we do wrong. All of our sin and mistakes and our shame and our brokenness just doesn't stand in his sight. And because of that, it, it forms like this massive roadblock between us and a holy God. And it's a roadblock that doesn't matter how good we are, we actually can't remove it. And that's an absolute tragedy because it separates us from relationship with the God who created us to be in relationship with him. And it's a tragedy because the Bible says God is love. And so we find ourselves separated from the immense, incredible 
love of God. And not only that, but God is also a just God. And in his justice and his holiness, he demands that there's a punishment for all those things we've done wrong, just as there is in our own justice system, even if we think it's too lenient most of the time. The Bible says that the wages of our sin, all the stuff we do wrong, all the mistakes we make, the wages of all of that is death. It's a death penalty that we deserve. But the great news of Christianity is this. It's found in the Bible's most famous verse, John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave, this is what we remember at Christmas time, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not pay that death penalty themselves, but will have eternal life. At Christmas, we celebrate Jesus' birth, but we only celebrate it because we know the rest of the story. We know that he wasn't just born, but he lived, he died, he rose again, and most importantly, he's coming back for his people. And when he died on the cross, we remember that he died in our place. And so all that sin and brokenness and and muck in our lives, Jesus locates himself there in the midst of all of that. And on the cross, he takes all of our sin and brokenness upon himself. And he says, the death penalty you deserve to pay, I'll pay it for you. And on the cross, with all of our sin on his shoulder, he stretches out his hands and he says the words, it is finished. The punishment you deserve has been paid. The sin, I have paid the price for it. It's God himself dying in our place. And he stands in the gap for us. And as he stretches out his hands, not only when we accept what he did for us, are we forgiven, but Jesus brings us back into relationship with God the Father. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so through his death and resurrection, he brings us back into incredible relationship with the God who called us to be in relationship with him. Our separation from God is finished by faith in Christ. And because Jesus stepped into the story, you and I can step back into relationship with God the Father. And that's the incredible great news of Christmas. This is what makes it the world's greatest story for everyone who's put their faith in him. Today we're here to celebrate Christmas. And I think the word gives away what we're celebrating, doesn't it? Christmas. We're here because Jesus has invited us into this great story. And I think one of the great ironies is that we live in a culture where people are trying to take the one who invites us into the story out of the story. There's a lot of people that want Christ out of Christmas. And so it's Xmas or it's season's greetings. Big W this year changed their Christmas trees from Christmas trees to the grand pine trees. Kids, it's December 1. Come inside. We're going to decorate the grand pine tree. And they go, what the heck is that? That's going to stay in the sandpit. I don't even know what that is. This week on social media, I saw a couple of Tasmanian senators, and they posted a photo of themselves at their Christmas party, and there was a massive sign that said, Merry Christmas. And they'd crossed out the Christmas, and it now reads, Merry Non-Denominational Seasonal Festivity. That's a mouthful, if nothing else. I think it's a mouthful of stupidity myself. But for many people, when it comes to Christmas, there's simply no room for Jesus. 
And as I said a moment ago, I think that's quite ironic that people can find no room for Jesus this Christmas because that's exactly what we read in the very first Christmas. If you look at today's passage, verse 1, it says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census be taken of the entire Roman world, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph went from Nazareth to Bethlehem because he belonged to the house and the line of David, and he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, and she placed him in a manger because there was no room available for them. And so here's the story. Jesus is going to be born, the Son of God, the one who this passage tells us would take away the sins of the world and they go to every inn and they get the same answer. There's no room, no room, no room for you. It's my Seinfeld soup Nazi impression if you know Seinfeld. No room, no room, no room until they get to one inn and they also say no room and then they say, oh, actually, at the back, off to the side, out of sight, out of mind, there's kind of a stable with some animals and junk and there's a, an animal feeding trough if you want to put your baby in there. And that's the first Christmas story. And so there's no room for Jesus. For many people, there was no room in Jesus' time then and for many people, there's no room for Jesus now. But the good news is that the innkeepers weren't the only people in the story. While they didn't see the significance of Jesus and could make no room for him, there were others that understood exactly who Jesus was. We read about the shepherds. They heard from the angel that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem in a manger. And so they quickly went and they found him. And for the shepherds, their only priority that first Christmas was to see Jesus, to spend time with him, to get to know him, to see him face to face and to tell everyone about him. That was their priority in the first Christmas. We have the wise men. They travelled from the east following the star until it stopped above the place where Jesus was and they bought him the greatest gifts they could get hold of. Gold, frankincense and myrrh and it says they bowed down and they worshipped him. And then there was Mary, of course, mother of Jesus. In verse 19 of today's passage, it says, Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Mary treasured Jesus in her heart. And what really struck me this year, as I reread the Christmas story, is that the choices made by the characters in that very first Christmas are still the very same choices that we face this Christmas. We can be like the innkeepers, and we can say, Jesus, there is no room for you this Christmas. We won't acknowledge you. We won't receive you. Or maybe we'll say, oh, there's a little bit of room off to the side, out the back, um, but there's a lot of really important things this Christmas like lunch and the Christmas tree and the presents and Uncle Bob. And we've got to deal with all that. So we sort of just squeeze Jesus out of the equation altogether off to the side. And that's the first response we can have to Jesus this Christmas time. But the second response is that we can respond more like the shepherds, the wise men and Mary. This Christmas we could make Jesus the priority to get to know him, to worship him, and to treasure him in our hearts. Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. 
And so this Christmas time, I want to finish with a challenge. It's a very short challenge, and I hope it's a challenging challenge. And the challenge is this. Don't shut Jesus out this Christmas. Open your heart and allow him to bring you in to the world's greatest story. A story of forgiveness, a story of grace, a story of redemption, a story of love, a story of incredible, eternal hope that began with the creation, that was saved through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and will be completed when Jesus returns. The question we've asked this Christmas is, what if you were in the world's greatest story? Well, the good news is that you can be this Christmas time. Because Jesus first stepped into the story for us so that we could step back into relationship with God. And so this Christmas, I want to challenge you to consider all of that. Maybe you've never accepted Jesus. Maybe you've never even thought about him. Maybe there's no room for him for you this Christmas. But I want to challenge you this Christmas to think about Jesus and to ask the question why thousands of years later we're still celebrating who he was and all he's done for us. Let's bow our heads and we're going to pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for Christmas time. And we thank you for the incredible message of Christmas. That for God so loved the world that he gave. His one and only son, his most precious possession. That whoever believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. Lord, I thank you that Christmas is a time of giving. That you have given so much to us. I pray, Lord, that we this Christmas time would think about others as well. That we would be generous with our time and with what you've blessed us with so that we would bless other people. But Lord, most of all, I pray that we consider the greatest gift of all time, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. This Christmas time, Lord, we don't want to shut you out, but we want to open our hearts and welcome you in. As we do, Lord, I pray that you do something amazing in our hearts, that we'd come to a new and fresh appreciation of all you are and all that you've done for us. And I pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen.